Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He's the only quarterback in the history of the Rams to lead the team to two NFL championships. First, he did it in 1945 with the Cleveland Rams, and then again in 1951 with the Los Angeles Rams. And he had a pinup poster wife to boot. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Bob Waterfield. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Today we're going to talk about a terrific quarterback, a Hall of Famer, the only man ever to lead the Rams to two NFL championships, Bob Waterfield. And joining me in just a bit to take a look back at the career of number seven will be Jim Selecki. Jim is the first guest to make a repeat appearance here on Sports Forgotten Heroes. A while back, Jim was here to talk about the Cleveland Rams. He is the author of a terrific book, the Cleveland Rams, the NFL team that left too soon. An expert on the early history of the Rams franchise, Selecki spent a great deal of time interviewing Buck Waterfield, who's Bob's son, and he'll share with us a lot from that interview and other research he has conducted as well. As always, thanks to those of you who continue to support Sports Forgotten Heroes like Henry R., Jack K., and Paul F., if you'd like to contribute to Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash sportsfh. Check out our website, sportsfh.com. There you can find out more on how to show your support, link back to previous podcasts, learn more about our guests, and see who else is scheduled. Follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes and look for our page on Facebook. Also want to let you know that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash SportsFH. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to enjoy your favorite books, especially if you're on the run like I am. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Hey, you get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. Bob Waterfield was originally drafted by the Cleveland Rams out of UCLA just in time for the 1945 season. The Rams, a team that had never recorded a winning season, suddenly became a contender with Waterfield under center, and he led the team in his rookie year to an NFL championship over the Washington Redskins. To this day, he is still the only rookie quarterback in NFL history to win the championship. A California boy, Waterfield was thrilled when the Rams left Cleveland for Los Angeles after his rookie year. And just a few years later, he led the Rams to another NFL championship. 
For his career, Waterfield threw for 97 touchdowns and rushed for another 13. Playing back in the day when you played on each side of the ball, Waterfield was much more than just a quarterback. He was one of the game's best punters and was a terrific defensive back too. And here to talk more about Bob Waterfield is Jim Selecki. Jim, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad to talk to you again. Great to be here, Warren. Thanks for having me back. Sure, sure. So last time you were here, we talked about the Cleveland Rams. Today, Bob Waterfield, the quarterback who led those same Cleveland Rams to the NFL championship in 1945, just before they left for Los Angeles. Now, Waterfield didn't mind leaving Cleveland for L.A. at all. In fact, I think he welcomed it. After all, he was from the L.A. area and attended UCLA. Tell us about what kind of football player he was in college and how that game translated to the pro game. Well, good question. Well, you know, first, uh, first it's kind of good to know what type of uh, athlete he was in college. And Bob, interestingly, went to uh, UCLA on a gymnastics scholarship. Hmm. Uh, his mother was, yeah, was a single parent and kind of encouraged him to go to college. He really had not planned to go to college because his, his father had passed away when he was about nine or 10 years old. Hmm. And, uh, but an incredible gymnast, uh, Bob was. Uh, you know, I spoke. I'd been I'd had interviewed uh, his son Buck several times, and Buck talked about how his father uh, had been one of the original gymnasts at Muscle Beach in uh, Santa Monica. Wow. How, uh, yeah, how he had in college. He used to kind of do handstands at kind of the edge of a building. Um, and in fact, uh, Buck even had a, a photo of that. So Bob was this great gymnast and uh, went to college, as I mentioned, probably didn't really even intend to play football. And then finally he went out in his sophomore year and, uh, and became the quarterback almost immediately in what was then a pretty new T-formation offense that they were setting up at, uh, at UCLA to compete with uh, USC. And uh, Bob was pretty smooth as, as a quarterback, as you would expect for a guy who was that athletic and, and had that background in gymnastics. His specialty was the naked bootleg, where he, you know, the whole offense would go in one direction, and then he would kind of just go around in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And one time, in fact, he even ended up in the end zone, uh, just holding, just standing there, holding up the ball. The officials hadn't even realized that he had scored uh, a touchdown. So, <laughs> so, so he was a yeah, he was a master at concealing the ball, you know, and um, and but he could run, he could pass, he could kick, he could punt. He, he was great on defense. He was a great defensive back, and um, and pretty much he took that style to the program. Uh, you know, it was that sort of overall athleticism uh, that I think that, that took him there. And it just he could physically do really whatever, you know, he sort of set out to do. Why did he wait so long to go to school? If, if my research is correct, he graduated high school, then waited about two years before going to UCLA. Why was that? Yeah, I think, um, I think first of all, I think he might have graduated from high school a little early. But then also he, uh, as I mentioned, his father had passed away, and Bob just had this idea that he was not going to go to college. That was kind of a luxury he couldn't afford. His his uh, mom was a single parent; she was a nurse, and so she kind of uh, you know raised him uh, by herself. And um, so Bob just got he went off and worked in uh, worked in, uh, in in an aircraft factory, um, Douglas Aircraft. He also worked as an actor's double in uh, Hollywood, and. Um, so he really just kind of, you know, kind of kicked around for a couple of years. And, um, and the other thing is that he would, would did not necessarily show, um, at least on paper, the, the sort of athletic or, or should say football ability that he, he was uh, soon to have. When he was in high school, 
He was up six uh, six one, but he only weighed about 155 pounds as a tailback. Played just one year. So, um, but interestingly enough, um, I, I, I had actually gone through these scrapbooks that Bob's uh, mother had kept uh, that, that are still in the possession of, of uh, Bob's son, Buck. And I found a business card in there um, for a scout who's a West Coast scout for the Chicago Bears, and uh, whose name was Raymond Fido Murphy. Hmm. And so I thought that was interesting. And Buck really didn't, he wasn't even sure what the background of that was. But it appeared as if just based on his athletic ability, uh, Bob um, uh, was being scouted by, by, uh, by, by football scouts even when he was in high school. But it's really, yeah, really that whole thing about um, just kicking around and just thinking he wasn't, wasn't even going to go to college. He was just going to be like a working man. And you said he wasn't exactly big. Where did his talent for being a quarterback come from? You know, he used to, uh, Buck tells stories about how his father, that he had heard from his grandmother, that Bob would go out in the backyard for hours and just throw a football through a tire. You know, it was one of these things where Bob, Bob was always a little bit of a loner and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and kind of quiet, you know, and, and again, didn't have, didn't have a father. And, um, but that was what he did. He just, he just worked on his passing and his kicking as well. In fact, that's kind of how we got onto uh, on the UCLA team when he went out for the football team in his sophomore year. He was just he was punting and just putting up these absolutely booming punts, and that's what sort of uh, that's what sort of attracted the coaches to him. They got got their attention. So it's really once he went to college, you know, his weight went from 155 to about 180, 190, and so all of this sort of coalesced when he was 19 or 20, and, that, and that's really when he became the quarterback that, that everybody remembers. And he was outstanding in college. So he plays for UCLA in 41 and 42, serves in the Army in 43, comes back in 44, and he sets all sort of single-game records for most passing yards, total offense, season records for most passing yards and touchdowns, all of which have been broken since. But he enjoyed a heck of a career at UCLA. Can you tell us a little bit more about his time playing football at UCLA and just how good he was? Yeah, he was pretty good. I mean, he was a player's player. You know, I mean, he could pass, he could run, he could kick. Uh, he could do defense, as I mentioned, and the coaches knew it. They built that whole T T formation offense around him because because at that point UCLA was kind of in the shadow of USC. USC was just the, the powerhouse on the West Coast, and and uh, and U, UCLA had never defeated USC in uh, in football. Hmm. So they, they 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 thought Bob was going to be in the T formation offense. This was going to be their breakthrough, you know, in the early uh, in the early 1940s. In Bob's first year in 1941, they tied, UCLA tied USC. And uh, probably, as I mentioned in the book, it probably felt like a victory to UCLA fans, just, you know, just to come to a tie. And, uh, but, but, you know, you get the feeling that Bob was always very competitive, and that probably was not enough for him. So sure enough, in 1942, kind of had his, his breakthrough season. Um, the, uh, uh, the Bruins had their first ever victory over USC, they had they were beginning to gather fans among some of the Hollywood uh, actors. In fact, Mickey Rooney, Ava Gardner were, were fans of UCLA. So Bob takes them to their first ever Rose Bowl. Um, unfortunately for Bob and for UCLA, they they lost to uh, Georgia in that Rose Bowl, uh, nine to nothing. And Bob threw a uh, an interception and had a punt blocked for for a touchdown. But you know, but nonetheless, here he is. He's you know, bearing in mind this is only his probably his second full season he's ever really played quarterback. Um, 
1943, he actually went off into the military in Georgia, which he actually, you know, absolutely hated uh, being being in the heat of Georgia. But he played football in 19- there, right? But he, he played did. football exactly. Right. Yeah. Played football. You're absolutely right. Played football. Played basketball. In fact, there's a picture in my book on the Cleveland Rams where he's, um, you know, he's standing there with his the rest of the basketball team, and you know, even then, basketball players were fairly tall. But here's Bob, six foot one, with the starters, and he's far and away the shortest guy on the team. <laughs> You know, and, and of course, with his usual sort of talismanic sort of number seven, which he wore throughout his his entire career and every sport that he played. Oh wow! Um, yeah, uh, but then 1944 was his big breakout year. This is when he became this great player at UCLA. Um, he was the MVP in the East-West Shriners game in San Francisco on New Year's Day 1945, and just again towering punts. It's interesting how you know remembering how the game was back in those days. You know, punts were every bit as important in the kicking game, every bit as important as the passing game in, sure. in many respects. And so Bob just had these towering punts that 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 uh, pinned um, pinned the other te- the, the the East team in their own territory, and that's pretty much uh, how they won. And uh, and it was after that game, in fact, that a scout for the uh, for the Cleveland Rams offered him a contract. And jumping ahead, way ahead, his punting is what helped the Rams win the 1945 NFL championship over the Washington Redskins because he kept punting the ball and pinning the Redskins deep. Absolutely. In fact, it was really the, uh, you know, that game was a tight game and the Rams uh, were up 15 to 14 heading in just into the final minutes. And, uh, and the Rams at the second half, their offense kept stalling after they scored 15 points in the first part of the game. And you're absolutely right. Bob just boomed something like a 50 or 60 yard punt, hmm. you know, almost, almost wow. a coffin quarter punt, and just yeah, just backed up the Redskins in their own territory, and and, uh, and you know, with a couple still a couple minutes left, and um, and then it, it, actually it was then when uh, when Washington uh, they threw an interception, and that was the end of the game. So yeah, Bob's punting in that game was was hugely important. So I jumped ahead. Let's go back. He finishes up college. And when you take a look back at the 1944 NFL draft, Waterfield wasn't taken until the fifth round. He was the 42nd overall pick. So three questions here. One, why did so many teams pass on Waterfield? Two, why did the Rams finally select him? And three, how did the draft differ back then from how it's conducted today? What well, is amazing how they passed on on Bob, um, you know, until that third round. A little bit back then was that it was sort of a bias towards Eastern players. And players out on the West Coast were, you know, that was just so far away for for most of the football establishment then. So I think Bob was a little bit um, off the, off the radar then. Um, in that first round, interestingly enough. Um, the Rams GM, Chili Walsh, took a, a player named uh, out of Purdue, Big Ten, named Tony Bukovich. And then this is uh, really telling for 1944. They had no idea. Chili Walsh had no idea that, that this, this uh, gentleman had died the day before on, on Okinawa <laughs> in, in a Marine invasion. That's awful. Yeah. That's awful. It, it's just isn't that terrible? But you know, it just goes to show that you know the lack of communication. Then, uh, the guy they did take in the second round was Gil Booley again, but he's from Boston College, an Eastern player, and ended up being a pretty solid lineman for the Rams uh, in, until 1950. At the same time, though, Chili Walsh had gotten some reports that Waterfield was that he was a little bit of an erratic performer, um, that he was a little bit temperamental. Uh, which and there was some truth to that. Bob again, you know, was was a little taciturn. Was I guess the best way to describe him. 
Um, and in fact, Jane Russell, his wife, called him Old Stoneface. Hmm. So I think some of those kind of yeah, so some of those kind of reports got back to I think Chile, which kind of probably put him off, and probably some of the other teams as well. Um, how did they? Uh, why did the Rams finally select him? You know, Chile Walsh, and, and really, you know, Chile Walsh deserves to be, I think, remembered uh, by football historians more than he is. He drafted three future Hall of Fame players within a couple of years with, with with the Rams when when uh, when they were in Cleveland, and one of them was Bob Waterfield. And what he did was. Uh, he just kind of he he started to the, the Rams were just perennially sort of a second division team, and he just kept getting uh, kind of second you know picked over players, uh, you know because the Bears, the Redskins, you know the powerhouse teams at the time just tended to have better sort of uh, better uh, uh, leads on players coming out of the big schools. So what Chile did was first of all he hired what is thought to be the first ever uh, scout in, in NFL history. And then he also, then he started to look at kind of the off the radar schools. He started to look, you know, he looked at the Big Ten, but he also looked uh, in the South. He looked in the West, looked at some of the lesser schools like UCLA again, kind of was you know second tier compared to USC. And um, he also, by the way, looked for players who were then in the military. He really took a gamble and thought, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to set up this team to be successful after the war. And Bob was one of those guys. Yeah. So when Bob was drafted in 1944, he was indeed still in the military. So Chile was kind of taking a gamble there. Um, but, you know, and to some respect, because there was no immediate uh, need for the Rams to win, they didn't have that big of a fan base. They didn't they weren't really a, a winning team. Chile had a little bit of that that luxury to sort of draft players for the future. Whereas, you know, as I say, the established seems like the bears, the giants, you know, the Packers, the Redskins, they had to play for now, even, even during the war. You mentioned how did the draft differ? I mean, you know, you think today the draft is like a multi multiple day spectacle, you know, and, and back then it was just done in a hotel room with, you know, a blackboard in a couple hours. Um, as I mentioned, you know, some of the GMs didn't even know the the, the, the players that they were going to pick. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, some and, and some might have passed away before the draft. Exactly. Yeah. So how telling was that? How the draft was back then? <laughs> you know, he didn't disappoint in his first year either. He rushed for five touchdowns, threw for fourteen, and in the championship game, he was fourteen of twenty-seven for a hundred and ninety-two yards and two touchdowns. One was a thirty-nine-yard strike to Jim Benton, and the other was a forty-four-yard pass to Jim Gillette. He was definitely the best player on the field that day and he was named the league's MVP I mean not only was he throwing the ball and connecting for touchdown passes as we talked about earlier he was also a heck of a punter and pinned the Redskins deep he was also the first rookie to ever lead a team to the NFL championship as the Rams down the skins that year 15 to 14 however as you noted, while he is the only rookie and still the only rookie at quarterback to ever lead a team to an NFL championship, there is an asterisk there because of Sammy Baugh. Explain that to me. Yeah, Sammy Baugh actually was as a rookie, uh, you know, took the, the Redskins to the NFL championship in 1937. But in those days, you know, he was a tailback, you know, the, uh, the, and the, and the single wing offense, the tailback was the primary passer. So by the mid forties, of course, now the, the, most of the passing duties have swung to the quarterback. And, and that was when Bob then took, uh, took the Rams to the championship as a quarterback. So Bob was technically the first court, rookie quarterback to take a, 
that team to an NFL championship. And incidentally, that's a record that still stands to this day. You think of all the great quarterbacks that have come through the NFL since then, and not a single one of them has managed to take a team to the uh, to the NFL championship in his rookie year. Incredible. So the Rams in that 44 draft found themselves a stud who leads them to the championship. Now you had mentioned that Chili Walsh was basically building for the future. Did he realize the future would come so quickly? Did the Rams expect to win a championship in 45 after all those awful years that they had previous to 45? And did they expect Waterfield to perform at such a high level in 1945. You know, I, I think there was. A, I think they had a bit of an inkling. Uh, you know, Chili Walsh said in 1944, he 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 was quoted as saying, you know, he said we are going to be basically the Rams are going to be a, a force to be reckoned with, with with after the war, and and in that score he was absolutely right. I mean, the Rams from you know 45 to 55 is 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 arguably. And I've got a, a story on a, a website called RamsTalk.net that that argues that that was the greatest period of the Rams' history in, in many respects. Um, but um, but I think they had some inkling that the team was getting better. They had the core of a team that had had gone 500 in 1944, um, even with players kind of coming and going, you know, through the military and coming back from the military. And um, but then I think. With with Waterfield, though, I don't think I don't think they thought he was going to be that great that fast. Although in training camp that year in 1945, in August 1945, you know, as I note, the same month that that the atomic bombs were dropped on, on Japan, so it was ending the war. Yeah, um, uh, the, the the head coach of uh, of the Rams, Adam Walsh, had said that he had a, he had a pretty good feeling that this team was going to be kind of a great team, and um, but nobody else really knew. You know, um, it, was, it was pretty much the rest of the league had no idea who Waterfield was. He had played, as, as I mentioned, was kind of a, from a, you know, somewhat of a secondary school. He was not an All-American, which in those days was considered almost, you know, a, uh, you, uh, you had to be an All-American to, to, to be a kind of a respected player. So I think, yeah, I think there was, I think the team internally knew that they were going to be good, maybe not that fast. But they certainly they certainly snuck up on the rest of the NFL, no doubt about that. Yeah, what did the rest of the league think about the Rams? I mean, here's a team that had previously only finished at 500 one time. Chili Walsh is building a team for the future. They arrive, they go 9-1, and one, led by a rookie quarterback. Tell me about that season. Tell me about that game. Well, the game, you know, was great, and you know, and you know, I talked about it in the previous uh, podcast. But you know, it was it was it's almost a, uh, an epic game. It's it's considered, uh, you know, one of the most interesting title games uh, of all time. You know, it's bitter cold in Cleveland Stadium. You know, Straw was ringing the field that they had put they put down to sort of um, insulate the field. I mean, it looked almost kind of post-apocalyptic. You know, the the the, the field. Um, the Redskins were a, the powerhouse. Um, had won championships prior to that. The Rams, of course, had never even been the five, had never even been a 500 team or a better than 500 team up until that season. Mm-hmm. Yet the Rams came in as, yeah, but yet the Rams came in as a three or four, four point favorite um, in part, in no small part, because they had a tough schedule. And uh, and also interesting heading into that game is that uh, is that uh, uh, the Rams owner Daniel Reese had just given Waterfield a brand new three year contract that nearly tripled his salary. So. You know, Dan Reeves would go on to show that he that he really invested in his in his payroll. 
but you know, so that got a lot of uh, a lot of publicity, a lot of attention heading in the game. And how how could they give before he's even finished his first season? How could they give you know triple the salary of this rookie quarterback? You know, the, the, so a lot of some of the sports writers in Cleveland were were, were um, you know absolutely beside themselves. Let me let me interrupt you but, for a second. What did the rest of the team yeah. think at that time? What did players think about something like that? You know, I, I think they they. I think they were probably okay with it because here was a guy who, you know, came in and really just uh, in many respects, almost single-handedly sort of transformed the Rams from, you know, from a 500 team to, you know, a championship team. And the other thing is, I think, I think there's a little bit of, um, uh, I want to, I think they're to some extent, they're a little bit starstruck. I mean, here's Bob coming in married to, you know, to Jane Russell, who at the time was, I mean, was the, you know, I mean, the preeminent sort of, you know, uh, movie star, and sex symbol of her time. In fact, Bob would bring Jane Russell to um, to some of the after game sort of uh, get-togethers for the players and some of the sports writers who covered them. And, and you know, suffice to say, that was very popular. Yeah, when, when, when she showed up. So, if from what I can gather is they, you know, they kind of embraced them. They, they, um, and I don't think there was any animosity there at all. You know. So, nineteen forty-five. Depending on how you look at it, was just the beginning or Maybe it was just the end. For Waterfield and the Rams, it was the beginning. For Waterfield and Cleveland, it was the end. The Rams left Cleveland 27 days after they won the championship, and they left for Los Angeles. What, if any role, did Waterfield play in that? One thing's for sure, he didn't mind going out there. In fact, as I said earlier, he liked it, didn't he? Yeah, he did like it. I mean, you know, and Bob was, he was honestly thrilled about it. Um, you know, he and his wife, Jane, I mean, they, they only spent about two or three months in, in Cleveland. They, they kept a little apartment in Cleveland. Um, they were not at all prepared for the cold. I mean, you're talking about two, you know, kids basically here who have spent their almost pretty much their entire lives in Southern California. So Jane, you know, Jane wrote an interesting autobiography um, in the mid eighties, which I kind of drew upon a little bit for the book, but you know, she said, boy, we didn't like either the heat in Georgia or the cold in Ohio. So they were thrilled to go back home to Van Nuys, you know, where the two of them had grown up. And uh, so what role did they have? You know, hard to say what role Bob had. You know, Van Rees, of course, wanted to move to California, which came out later. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, he had seen a USC game at the L.A. Coliseum 10 years earlier um, when he was college age. And he was absolutely astounded by you know, by the size of the Coliseum, football was big even then on, on the West Coast. Uh, there were a lot of big semi-pro teams, and and uh, of course USC was always a powerhouse. He was smitten by California. You know, this is the pre-war, pre-sort of freeway crazed LA. So he was uh, one moved to California. As I mentioned, Chili Walsh, the general manager, Adam Walsh, his brother, who is the head coach. They were both California natives. Both, in fact, had gone to Hollywood High School. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, there was a little bit of a, a feeling later, like, you know, you have these multiple people on the Rams franchise at the time who either had connections to, to LA or wanted to have connections to LA. And then, yeah, I think there was a little bit of, um, Bob might've been a little bit of a factor in there. I mean, he was the franchise player. As I mentioned, far and away the highest player on the team, obviously it was in their best interest to keep him happy. Sure. Um, the Rams yeah, the Rams are very cognizant that Jane Russell, you know, was was a star. Um, in fact, is signing Bob Chili Walsh 
said something along the lines of, well, you know, hey, he's married to Jane Russell, and that didn't make signing him any easier. <laughs> uh, so there might have been, you know, all these kind of factors kind of coalesced. And, uh, the, you know, the kind of the fallout was from it was that for some years after that, some Clevelanders sort of continued, you know, blame Jane Russell for the Rams leaving, that, you know, that she had this sort of, you know, like an inexorable sort of pull of, of pulling Bob out of Cleveland. How did how did Bob meet Jane Russell, and what was their relationship like? I mean, ultimately they did get a divorce, but let's talk about that in a little bit. What was their relationship like, and and how did they meet? They met, you know, when they were in high school. They're both they're kind of high school sweethearts. Uh, both had grown up, as I mentioned, in San Fernando Valley. They went to Van Nuys High School. And I don't know if you know anything about. Van Nuys High School, but it's sort of this iconic high school. I mean, Marilyn Monroe went there, Robert Redford went there, Natalie Wood, Sam wow. Field. Wow. Don, yeah, Don Drysdale went there. So, in fact, it was the high school in the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So this is, so they met in high school at this sort of very, you know, iconic sort of Southern California high school. Um, by all accounts, Bob kind of catted around a little bit before he uh, started dating uh, Jane. In fact, by nearly all accounts, he, he continued to, to, to play around a little bit even after they were married, which, of course, caused, caused a big, uh, big, a lot of friction there. But they were inseparable for a long time. Um, you know, Buck Waterfield, their, their adopted son, told me, he said, you know, he says, it was really love-hate between those two. He said they couldn't be apart from each other, but they really couldn't be together either. You know, Bob was very earthy. He was loved to hunt. They loved to fish. Uh, Jane was artistic in effect. She was very spiritual, like even religious, um, which might be a little surprising given that, you know, she had a role in this risque Howard Hughes movie called, called the outlaw. So they were very similar and very attracted to each other, almost, almost, uh, from the start. But again, they were, they were different enough people that they just had this, this tension between them. Um, and, but yeah, at the, at the, at the height of their careers, they were, as, as Buck told me, they were the king and queen of L.A. Uh, you know, they had a house with a big pool up in the hills that overlooked the San Fernando Valley, and, and life was good for them for, for quite a long time. So let's go back to the field. They move out to California. They play in Los Angeles. They're coming off an NFL championship. They had gone 9-1. and one. Their first year in L.A., they didn't do as well. Um, they went 6-4-1. and one. Waterfield had a decent season. What happened? Why the slide? You know, it's hard to say exactly what happened that first year in L.A. You know, many people thought they were going to repeat um, their championship in 1946, although others did also say, you know, thought very little of the Rams and said that they were a fluke, you know, and, and that the Chicago Bears would reassert their, their uh, you know, their, their sort of reign over the league. But as I mentioned in the book, Sport Magazine called the Rams sports first spectacular post-war team. Wow. Um, yeah, which is which is interesting. I mean, that was and that was the sort of the the cloud that they left Cleveland under. Um, you know, travel obviously didn't you know didn't impact them that much. They had about a home record that was about the same as on the road. Yep. Um, even though back even though back in those days, I mean, um, a train ride from Chicago to L.A. was forty five hours. So that, to, to to play on the road in L.A. was or not to easy. go from L.A. It was not easy. Uh, they had a huge new stadium. Um, it was even, I mean, they had played at Cleveland Stadium a little bit, but here's, you get the LA Coliseum, was that's 20, something like 20% bigger than Cleveland Stadium. They lost a few players to the Browns, um, which I think we talked about in our last interview. Sure. Uh, team, you know, Chet Adams, who is the team captain, and uh, Don Greenwood, who is the star fullback. So they, you know, they lost a few players there. 
and they had, they had honestly some controversy on the team that first year as well because they, um, as a condition of getting into LA Coliseum, they signed a few African American players, um, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, and there were some reports that came out that even internally within the Rams camp, you know, some of the players, you know, particularly some of the players from the South, weren't real thrilled about that. So there was a little bit of that dissension. Um, you know, within the team. And it probably just goes without saying, I mean, in 1946, the rest of the league returned to full strength. All the, you know, all the military people were back home. Uh, Bob didn't like sneak up on the, you know, on the league, like in 1946, you know, like he had in 45. That said, he still had a pretty good year in 46. You know, it's one of his best years. Um, you know, he was first team all pro that year. And I, I think that year he had, uh, he had a league leading 17 touchdown passes. Yep, so he, sure did, did. You know, he did, he did pretty good. Like Jim said, 1946 was one of Bob's best years. He completed 127 of 251 pass attempts. Both figures led the NFL, and his 17 touchdown passes also led the league. He did have a tendency, though, to throw the ball to the other team. In 1946, he threw 17 interceptions. In fact, if there is a downside to his career... It's that he threw 128 interceptions while only connecting for 97 touchdown passes. On the other side of the ball, in 1946 playing defensive back, Bob intercepted the ball five times and also recovered three fumbles. Now, before we get back to my conversation with Jim, just a quick reminder that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. And for listeners of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we have a terrific offer for you. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Over 180,000 titles available from history to fiction to sports and more. Give Audible a try. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh for your free audiobook. Hey, if you're like me, running through airports, sitting on planes, racing from location to location, and you just can't find the time to sit down and read, and you don't like lugging around a heavy book, Audible is great. Give it a try. It's free. Now, back to Bob Waterfield. One other note about Bob. He was also the Rams kicker, and in 1946, he connected on six of nine field goal attempts and led the league by making 37 of 37 extra point attempts. And he had his best year punting with an average of 44.7 yards per punt. They're 6-4-1 in 46. They play 47, they're fine. They play 48, they're fine, but they don't get into a championship. Along comes 1949, and while they didn't do anything spectacular, it was the beginning of a run. In fact, Waterfield enjoyed a wonderful year in 1949. What can you tell us about his performance on the field in 1949 and the championship game against Philadelphia? Yeah, you know, this is like the Rams, you know, Waterford, they had a, kind of a few years in the wilderness there, and, and it's, which is a little odd because here's Bob, you know, he's back home and he's, you know, presumably more comfortable. But, yeah, 1949, the Rams finally got that groove back. And as I mentioned, they were really hitting, hitting probably, you know, one of the greatest streaks in their, in their, in their franchise history. Um, you know, Bob was uh, first team all pro for the first time since, since 46. The Rams have one of the top offenses in the league. 
But it's also interesting to note, too, and then we'll get into this a bit, you know, Bob also had, a, had sort of a propensity to throw, to, uh, to throw interceptions as well. So he had 24 interceptions that season, which was the most in the league. Wow. And uh, so, while, yeah, so while it was a great, you know, it was a great season, and they vied with, uh, you know, they, well, they came down to a championship game with the, uh, you know, with the Eagles. Um, but, you know, Bob was starting to show this sort of, uh, this sort of, as I mentioned, kind of a propensity to throw interceptions. And I think that is probably what started to, started to uh, kind of shake that, that hold that he had as a starting quarterback. Yeah, and, and especially came to light in 1950, which I find very interesting. So here he leads the team to a championship game, comes back in 1950, and he winds up splitting time with the Flying Dutchman, Norm Van Brocklin. They each started six games that year. Is that because of Bob's propensity to throw interceptions? What happened? Why split the role at quarterback? Yeah, I think it probably was. You know, here you had two two quarterbacks who probably had kind of fallen into sort of like, you know, kind of co-parity. I mean, in that 49 championship game, that they were shut out by the Eagles, 14 to nothing. And Bob and Norm Van Brocklin both had, you know, pretty similar games, which is to say not that great. You know, but I think, <laughs> you know Bob went like 5 of 13 and Van Brocklin went like 5 of 15. So I think he kind of fell into this sort of, okay, what happened? Our offense stalled. We have two quarterbacks. Who both of whom show a lot of potential. Um, so I think it was a hit in 1950. Yeah, I think they're trying to get something going. And it might have been a little bit of that old accusation about Bob being an erratic performer, you know, that, that Chili Walsh had heard years earlier that kind of came back to haunt him. Um, you know, the other interesting thing, too, is, you know, and they started, as you mentioned, they started, they had sort of co starters. You know, Bob was strangely enough, not really not all that popular in LA. Um, and, hmm. and which I find a little bit puzzling. Yeah. And I, I you know, as, when I was conducting research for my book, I, I interviewed Joe Horrigan, who's kind of the lead historian at the uh, pro football hall of fame. And Joe had an interesting uh, take on that. He said, you know, he said, think about it. It's almost like a reverse hero worship. You know, you got a guy here who's good looking. He's, you know, he's a star athlete, probably could have been an actor married to a movie star. You know, it was almost like when Bob failed to deliver that championship in those first couple of years in LA, you know, the sort of the kind of the long knife started to come out on him. So, you, you know, you had this thing, you're kind of assuming that Bob was going to be a hero in his hometown, but it was, for some reason he was never all that popular there. Could that possibly be from, or is there any evidence whatsoever that his life off the field, being married to Jane Russell, had any effect on his performance on the field? Yeah, it's possible. You know, I mean, and, and, and they, I mean, they, they've certainly had their erratic times, you know, and, and, and even, I mean, almost from the get-go in their relationship, actually. And, and, I mean, there's parts in Jane Russell's autobiography where she talks about how, you know, she talked him into, into getting a beach house at Malibu, and so she wanted to spend weekends in Malibu. But, you know, Bob was a guy who, you know, he stuck close to home almost his entire career. You know, Bob spent his entire life in Southern California, save for you know, that year that he spent in Georgia and the, the three months he spent in Cleveland. He, hmm. he was a, kind of a guy of, 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 yeah, he was kind of a home body, kind of a homeboy. And, um, and so there was tension going on there. Yeah. To your point, even then, and, and probably that was a bit of a distraction, you know, for Bob through that. So 1950, he splits time with Norm Van Brocklin in the playoffs. He comes off the bench against the bears to help the Rams beat Chicago. 
And then in the championship game against the Cleveland Browns, he threw an 82-yard touchdown pass to Glenn Davis on the game's first play. But they lost to Cleveland 30-28. to It was another terrific game, another terrific season. Was it his performance in the playoffs that led him to being named the undisputed number one quarterback for the team for the 1951 season? You know, I think it probably was. I mean, Bob was all set to be the, the hero in that 1950 championship game. As you mentioned, they came out, the Rams came out firing on the first play in Cleveland Stadium. 82-yard pass, and boy, that just put the, you know, the Browns back on their heels. Um, you know, the crowd has silenced the crowd, and, you know, and the Rams were ahead most of that game. The Browns just kind of kept coming back and kept coming back. I mean, I mean, he really, Bob was undone by, you know, by Otto Graham's, you know, drive, which was kind of this almost like, you know, John Elway-ish kind of, you know, drive. And it was, uh, it was, it was, it was the, the, you know, the proverbial two-minute drill. And, um, and it left, uh, uh, you know, it came down to, uh, to Lou Groza kicking the, the game-winning field goal with like 28 seconds left. So, I mean, so there goes that whole legendary sort of performance for Bob. But I think, yeah, probably they saw something that day. You know, Bob had kind of matched Otto Graham that day in passing yardage, and uh, the only difference was that Graham connected for four touchdowns and Bob only had that one. Right. But I think probably, yeah, so I think they saw something there, and they, you know, and, and that's why he, he became, probably why he became the, you know, now back to the undisputed number one uh, in a quarterback in 1951. As the number one quarterback, how much time did he spend on the field playing defense, and just how good an overall player was he at that time of his career? You know, Platoonie started to come in, so obviously I think you know his time on defense lessened. But but he was when he, when he was playing defensive back. I mean, he was the full package. You know, um, the, 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 just as I mentioned, there, there are things that he could do that that hardly any other player was able to do really did prior to him or did after him really and uh but yeah as a defensive back he was as i mentioned in the book in the, in the 1945 championship game if you see him and i study the film from that game it's really interesting to see he really had a, a, a touchdown saving tackle about the 30 yard line against the redskins i mean there's a running back which is, I mean, was off to the races it looked like he was going to score a touchdown and uh, Waterfield caught him by almost by the shoestring, and kind of as the guy was going out of bounds, and uh, that pretty much kept the Redskins uh, uh, from score, obviously from scoring a touchdown. They attempted a field goal and then missed the field goal, and that was kind of the difference in that game. So Bob was a, a fantastic uh, uh, defensive back, and his kicking—I mean, his kicking was really was really what uh, was kind of his signature thing in many respects. The, the story about him was that. He could, and this is a story that's relayed to me by his son, Buck. He, he could place kicks to the 50-yard line and literally hit a water bucket in the end zone wow. time after time. Yeah. yeah, he was, I mean, he was that accurate. And he did it so many times that his, his teammates started to call him water buckets, and then they started to call him just buckets, and then they finally <laughs> started to call him, him Buck. And that was kind of his nickname, which then he gave, then gave his son. So, uh, yeah, so, and, and it's going back to being a defensive back, you know, he, I mean, he had, I was just looking up uh, last night, he had 20 interceptions in four seasons. Wow. Yeah. Let me ask yeah. you this. As a quarterback and a place kicker, you face a lot of pressure. How much did playing in the defensive backfield, how much did he enjoy that? There, there, there couldn't have been as much pressure 
being a DB as there is as being a QB? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's obviously it's, it's somewhat similar skills. You know, to some respects. So you know, but uh, yeah, it might have been a little bit of a different kind of a, a relief valve. You know, the fact that those players played both ways back in those days. I mean, it's just I mean, it's mind-boggling today. You know, although at the same time, what's interesting too is uh, you know the 1945 championship game. As I mentioned, how cold it was. One member of the Browns or the Rams who was on both sides played both ways. Said uh, said I, you know it wasn't that bad for those of us who were on the field on both offense and defense. He said it was. I felt bad for the guys who were on the bench. You know, so <laughs> so I think back in those days, a lot of these players liked to play both ways, and then you know they probably found it rewarding. Sure, you know, 1951 was perhaps his most satisfying year. He started 10 games for the Rams. They went 7-3 and three in those 10 games. He led them to the NFL title over the Cleveland Browns. Finally, another championship. How satisfying a year was that for him? And no clue that this was truly the beginning of the end for him as well. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure satisfying. And here he is. He brings an NFL championship, uh, you know, to, to, to Los Angeles. Um you know, which incidentally is still the only championship that the that the Rams have uh, have ever won in Southern California. And they're the only team to have won a championship in three different cities, having won in Cleveland, L.A., and St. Louis. Absolutely, yep. It was a singular distinction for the Rams. Um, so yeah, it was, so it was Bob's second championship, which you know probably helped him to honestly to you know probably helped to later to lock up his his induction into the Hall of Fame. Here and now he's won championships in two different cities, uh, six years apart. And uh, individually, he had a really good year that year. He had uh, he led the league in passer rating. Uh, he threw the longest TD pass of the year that year. And and by the way, he also threw the fewest interceptions of his career that season. So that was a yeah, that was other than his 45 season, that was that might have been his most memorable season. So he has a great year in 51, leads the team to the championship. His fewest interceptions comes to 52 and it's Norm Van Brocklin's job. I don't get it. Explain that to me. Yeah, well, you know, well, he did start six of the games that season, but you know, I think it, I think it kind of goes back to the 51 championship game. You know, here's here they they won the championship um, but yet, at the same time, Bob threw, he started the game, but he threw, also threw two interceptions in that game, and uh, and no touchdowns. Whereas uh, uh, Norm Van Brocklin threw the game-winning touchdown to to Tom Fears. So I think it probably has something to do with that. It's, it almost seems as if the coaches then were kind of they're kind of going based on the performance of the most recent game. So, and so I think it's a little bit of that. But another really critical factor was that um, Bob was, uh, and it was not as well known that Bob was developing an ulcer. That was caused by stress. Yeah, and he was told it potentially could have killed him. He, he, when he went to see a doctor, he said, you know, the doctor said, uh, he, he, he told him that he was kind of psychologically unsuited to be a player because he just assumed too much personal responsibility for the team's performance. So, you know, oh, Bobby he was the quarterback. The he was the quarterback and the place kicker. All the points come from him. Exactly, exactly. So I think that, was, that probably affected his uh, performance as well. You know, I mean, it's clearly he was just not feeling good that season, and yet he was only in his early 30s. So yeah, just but that's really why, right? So that's really why he retired. Is I mean, it was it was really you know to save his own life. So they honored him. He announced his retirement as the season was wearing down, and they honored him. And now I guess there's some question as to whether or not they actually did indeed retire his number. 
But in your interviews with his son, Buck, he says, well, I don't know if the number was actually retired. They just don't issue it anymore. Tell me about that. Yes, it's one of these, you know, kind of strange things. I mean, everywhere you look, um, if you look it up on Pro Football Reference or whatever, they have the retired numbers for the uh, for the Rams. And uh, and according to Buck, is that they never technically officially retired Bob's uh, number seven. They, all the trainers and the coaches and everything just have never given out that number seven to any player subsequent to to Bob. But according to Buck, they've never officially retired it. So, so you know, if any if anyone listening to this has any insight on that, I'd be really interesting uh, to know, because it was uh, it's a little bit of a technicality, and obviously it it kind of I think it it kind of uh, hurts the you know the Waterfield uh, family a little bit. The fact that they've never the Rams organization has has never done this. Interesting, you know, when he retired, he held the NFL career records for extra points and field goals. Overall, he averaged 42.4 yards as a punter, completed 814 passes for 11,849 yards and 97 touchdowns, but he didn't go away. He remained in the game as an assistant coach, and later he was a head coach of the Rams, where he went 9-24-1 from 1960 through 62. He wasn't that successful. What were his shortcomings as a coach? Why didn't he succeed? Well, you know, as you know, as I mentioned, Bob, uh, Bob wasn't probably the most engaging uh, person. Um, although I don't know, you know, that might have been a bit of a factor uh, as, as a coach. But really, by all accounts, you know, Bob was given a rebuilding team. You know, the Rams were going through some really lean times in the field. Then they made some bad trades. Um, and there was a sort of there's a lot of bickering that was going on in the front office. So I think it's kind of what considered one of the sadder episodes. You know, there's a lot of NFL quarterbacks who went on to be to be fairly mediocre head coaches, and Bob is one of them. And, and it's a little sad for Bob because it was sort of a, a you know again he was handed kind of a difficult situation. But it's kind of funny. I mean, but that said, Bob kind of accepted responsibility for it. But it, but you know, in his usual sort of laconic way, you know, when he was fired, the press asked him, so you know, what kind of coach? did you think you had been? And he said in this usual one word way, losing. <laughs> so, so, you know, so, so Bob, it's a little bit unfortunate that, that, that that's kind of how that wrapped up, but it, he was kind of dealt a little bit of a raw deal there. And unfortunately, a short time later, his marriage to Jane Russell, it didn't succeed either. They divorced in 1968. And from what I've read, she just didn't like his late night antics. But before the divorce, they they appeared to have it going on. They were producing movies. They adopted three children. What was his relationship like with Jane during that time? What were his golden years like? Well, probably tempestuous kind of maybe best describes, you know, Bob's and Jane's years together. You know, as I mentioned, you know, Buck put it well when he said his parents couldn't stand to be apart, but they also couldn't be together. That kind of just ended up being, you know, the proving to be the undoing of their relationship. You know, both Bob and Jane ended up remarrying. But I think it's interesting. You know, I, I mentioned about Jane's autobiography from the 80s. And if you read through it, she spends uh, relatively little time on her second and third husbands. Um, it's, you know, and part of it is because she wasn't with them as much for as many years. But it, if you read the book, it's nearly all Bob, nearly huh. to the end of the, of the autobiography. And, and, and it re- you can really tell that she really never quite fully got over him. Um, 
you know, but but Bob just sort of forged on, you know. And you mentioned what were his golden years like, you know. He, he just didn't just he just kept pushing forward. He had started off in his teens, not thinking that he would even play football. And then once he got into it, he realized he didn't want to leave. And, and in fact, he never really did leave football. Um, you know, as you mentioned, he, he coached. Um, he was a movie producer for a few years with Jane. They sort of, they sort of set up a kind of a joint uh, movie production company, but that's sort of fizzled a little bit. Um, did become a scout for the Rams. He's credited with drafting players like Roman Gabriel and Merlin Olson, Deacon Jones. Yep. But as you mentioned, yeah. You know, he had late, his late-night antics. He hung out with his old friends. Never liked to be treated as a celebrity, uh, Buck told me. Uh, you know, was very uncomfortable with any sort of any sort of star, you know, worship or hero worship or anything. Um, but, yeah, you know, by all counts, came to enjoy a little bit too, too much nightlife. And, and when he died in 1983, it was, he was only 62. Way too young. You know, he was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1965. Sum up his career for us. Just how good was Bob Waterfield? What should we remember about Bob Waterfield? You know, interestingly, there's there's no unanimity on Bob's inclusion in the Hall of Fame. For the most part, you know, the, I think people accept it. And although it's also a little bit sad that Bob's name is beginning to sort of fade a little bit. Um, Which and, is why uh, and, I and wanted I that... to do this podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes, and Bob Waterfield, a Hall of Fame member, a two-time NFL championship quarterback, should not be forgotten. Agree, agree, and for and and, on, and for a number of reasons, you know. And, and one one thing, kind of one knock against him, particularly, you know. And of course, there's always debates as to who should be inducted in the Halls of Fame. But you know, one thing, the, the big knock on Bob is that he threw more interceptions and touchdowns across his career. But you know, I would say that he deserves to be in this. You mentioned he won two NFL championships, six years apart, two different cities. Uh, he was, by all accounts, an athlete of just a supreme degree who excelled on both sides of the ball. You know, that's that part, that whole part of the game, of course, is also lost to history, how hard it was to play both sides of the ball. And I would also suggest, you know, if you if, that, if, that he was in many ways sort of the prototype of the modern quarterback. You know, he was smart. He was elusive. He was able both to run and pass. As I see in my book, he would look familiar. His style of play would look very familiar on, you know, flat screen TVs as today. You know, Bob did that. This was not leatherhead football. If you go back and watch it, there's, there's, there's some complex play calling that's going on and a lot of interesting, interesting movement that Bob is doing. And then, of course, to be able to place kick and punt as well. You know, as I mentioned, there was no one quite like that before him, and there's certainly no one uh, – after him. So I think what people should remember about him, and, and his son Buck has really emphasized as well, Bob was truly one of the greatest athletes ever to play pro football. He was just a fully gifted, almost kind of Bo Jackson sort of sort of player in some respects. And then just to re- why should we remember him? Just from a personal perspective, Bob, is, his life is intriguing. You know, in fact, there's a, I think there's a book or a movie there that's just kind of waiting to happen. Um, you know, I mentioned as Buck said, you know, said so at the height of their careers in the 40s and 50s, you know, uh, his parents were the king and, and queen of L.A. You know, he was good looking, this former actor, uh, you know, championship athlete and all around uh, just an all around kind of uh, Hollywood type of guy married to his celebrity wife. You know, I mean, Tom Brady and Giselle of the 2010s, you know, would have nothing on Bob Waterfield and Jane Russell of the, of the forties and fifties. And it's just a really fascinating story of that sort of unique time in American history and in American sports. 
Jim, thank you so much for joining me once again on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I really enjoyed our conversation. Certainly hope you did too. And would hope once again you'd consider coming back. Absolutely, Warren. It's been fun, and I'll be happy to do that anytime. Awesome. Thank you. Bob Waterfield was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1965 along with Patty Driscoll, Danny Fortman, Otto Graham, Sid Luckman, and Steve Van Buren. For his career, he connected for 97 touchdowns, twice leading the league with 14 in 1945 and 17 in 1946. Bob completed 50.3% of his passes, and in the playoffs, he added another six touchdown passes while completing 50.4% of his passes, and he led the Rams to the NFL championship in 1945 and 1951. Coaching, however, that was another story. In his first year, 1960, Bob and the Rams went 4-7-1, and and he followed that with a 4-10 mark in 1961. He was finally relieved of his duties midway through the 62 season after going 1-7. It was as a player, however, where Bob Waterfield really made his mark, and he played the game incredibly well. He's the only quarterback to win two championships for the Rams and is still the only rookie quarterback to lead his team to an NFL championship. For more information on Bob Waterfield, please visit our website, sportsfh.com. There I have links to articles, videos, and stats on Bob. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Check out our Facebook page and check out our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash sportsfh. In the coming weeks on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk more about some of football's forgotten stars, look at some of the NBA and NHL's forgotten stars, and a whole lot more. Thanks again to my guest, Jim Selecki. His book, The Cleveland Rams, The NFL Team That Left Too Soon, can be found wherever you get your books, places like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And he also has a great website called cleerams.com. That's C-L-E-R-A-M-S.com. There you can find out more information on Bob Waterfield and the first incarnation of the Rams franchise. Thanks again for spending some time with me, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.